The book of Romans, chapter 8, and we come this morning to one of the best passages in all the Bible as we meditate upon uh, the golden chain of our salvation, which is also the golden chain of, of our assurance of salvation. And I thank Bob for praying for the uh, upcoming week that I'll have in preparation for uh, the preaching of next year. I covet your prayers as we, uh, as I go into this week. Uh, it's always a, a great time of encouragement, but it's also uh, always a little bit daunting uh, to be thinking about what will we be preaching a year from now. Uh, but God is good, and He is, uh, with all the years that I've been here, and I'm sure beyond, uh, been faithful. Uh, to use his word, to use the planning of Carl these past decades, and then the time that he's given me uh, to anticipate all that he will do uh, through his word in, in weeks and months and years to come. So now we come to Romans chapter 8, this glorious text. Hear God's word, uh, beginning in verse 28. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray again and ask him to help us as we study his word. Father, we thank you for the rich assurance that your word gives to us who love the Lord because you have first loved us. Lord, would you use your word even now to comfort those hearts that are trembling and afflicted? Would you use your word to afflict those hearts that are comfortable in sin and unbelief? Lord, would you come by your Holy Spirit and would you grow us up in grace and the knowledge of your gospel the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you, if you profess to be a Christian this morning, then why are you sure that you know the Lord? Why are you sure that you really are what you claim to be? Why are you confident that you will be saved from God's holy wrath when Jesus Christ returns on the last day? Why are you sure that you will enjoy an eternity of joy rather than an eternity of misery? Why are you sure and confident that all the suffering, all the trials that you experience in this life are not a sign that God has rejected you, but are a sign that he loves you and that he is working all of that suffering for your good? And if you are confident, and what, on what basis are you confident, right? Why are you confident of these things? On what grounds are you confident that these things are true of you? As I was reflecting on these questions this week, I was reminded of my seventh and eighth grade basketball team. From kindergarten to ninth grade, I went uh, to a small Christian school in Baton Rouge called Chapel Trafton. Uh, it was, uh, now it's called the Dunham School. Uh, back then, there were only about 30 or 40 kids in each grade, and, and there were seven boys on our seventh and eighth grade basketball team, seventh grade and then eighth grade, seven boys. Now, we were pretty good. Um, we weren't great, as you can imagine, with seven boys, weren't great. And we certainly weren't as good as Episcopal School and their team. And when I say we weren't as good as them, 
Um, I don't mean like, you know, we, we hung with them until the end and then they would beat us by like 10 or 15 points. Now, every single game, the score was like 75 to eight. And I, I'm not making that up. I, I mean, it just every single game, they would beat us like a drum. And I wish I could tell you Hollywood ending, you know, we, we beat them on a last second shot in the last game, but it never happened, right? Every single game, we walked into that gym knowing, right, with full confidence that we would get destroyed, right? And Episcopal walked in with 100% full assurance that they were going to emerge victorious, right? Probably without even trying. I mean, these guys were big, they were tall, they were fast, they were really, really good at basketball. And you look at them and you think, I think you hit puberty in fifth grade, right? Or you would, were held back just to beat us in basketball. Um, now, think about the confidence that, that we had, which was zero, and the confidence that, that they had, which was 100%, right? Full confidence. Some of you approach the Christian life, you approach your salvation, right, with the, the way that Episcopal approached our basketball games, full of confidence. And yet, you ought to approach your salvation the way that Chapel Trafton approached it, because your assurance is a false assurance, right? Your assurance is, is full of ignorance, presumption, and pride. That, that's, that's the way it is for some of you. But for most of you, perhaps, you approach salvation, you approach the Christian life the way that Chapel Trafton approached it, when you have full right and full grounds on which to approach it the way Episcopal approached it. You have salvation full and free from God Almighty, and he wants you to be assured of your salvation. If you have been born again, then God wants you this morning to know that you have eternal life. He wants you to know that nothing can take your salvation away from you. But he wants that assurance to be rightly grounded, not in yourself, not in your works, not in your efforts, not in your abilities, but he wants it to be grounded in his grace and what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, Paul is giving us the most solid foundation on which to build our assurance so that we can know for certain that we are saved and that we can know for certain that all of our suffering, all of our sorrows are going to be swallowed up in glory on the last day. What is this foundation? This foundation that Paul gives us here in this text is the purpose of God. The purpose of God before time, the purpose of God in time, and the purpose of God for all time. Let's look at those three things together this morning from this text. First, the purpose of God before time. Last week we saw in verse 28 that Paul declared with full confidence one of the most comfortable truths in all the Bible. We know, he says, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And we asked this last week, how does Paul know that this is a true statement? And the answer is because he knows that the sufferings that we experience have, have been ordained on purpose by God who has called us according to his purpose. And so Paul here begins verse 29 with a little word for because he is confirming 
the truth that he's just spoken in verse 28. And he's confirming it by unfolding for us the eternal plan of God and his execution of that plan in the lives of his people. And so here in verse 29, Paul is giving us a behind-the-scenes view of God's purpose for his people, a purpose that, that is before the foundation of the world, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, a purpose before times eternal, a purpose in eternity past. This is what God has done for us before the world was created. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul mentions two actions. He foreknew us and he predestined us. Let's think about both of those this morning. First, Paul says that God foreknew us. Now that word can often be used as God knowing something beforehand, right? Of God having foresight that, that something is going to come to pass. And so because of that, some understand Paul here to be teaching that, that what happens is that God looks down the hallways of time, right, from his eternal vantage point, and he, he sees ahead of time that certain people are going to choose him, and so he chooses them, right? He sees that people have faith in him, right, that they will select him as their destination, and so he predestines them to that destination, now, of course, it is true. God knows everything beforehand. He wouldn't be God if he didn't. Right? But there are several problems with this view that, that, that election is contingent upon foreseeing faith. Right? That God chooses those who he foresees will choose him. The, the first problem is this. It would mean that the cause of our salvation is not God, but us. Ultimately, it's something in us. We were chosen because we had faith. We had the, the holy wisdom to choose Jesus as opposed to all those people over there who didn't. Right? And thus, we would have grounds in which to boast in ourselves. There, there would be a reason to pat ourselves on our own back with regard to our salvation. But if you've been with us or through the series in Romans, if you've been ever read the book of Romans, you know that the whole point of Paul in Romans is to exalt not man, but the free grace of God, to give glory to God. And so Paul, teaching so clearly here in this book and across his writings, faith itself is a free gift of God. Right? Even if this passage were teaching that, that, that God foresaw faith that we would have, even that faith would be a gift from him, something that he would have created within us. So that's the first problem. It exalts man rather than God. But the second problem with that view, that, that somehow God chooses us because he sees ahead of time that we will choose him, the second problem is that that's not what the text actually says, is it? Paul doesn't write for those in whom God foresaw faith. No. Paul writes for those whom God foreknew. It's not a what God foreknew, it's a whom God foreknew. And in the Bible, this word know has a very intimate and, and personal meaning. Right? It's more than just knowledge about. Right? It is a knowledge of. It can be used synonymously with, with love, to know with peculiar affection and, and delight and action. 
Think about Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, when Moses writes that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, right? An intimate knowledge. Or in Genesis 18, verse 19, as God reflects upon why he had saved Abraham, he says to himself, he says, I have known him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. I have known him. Now, if you go and you look up Genesis 18, 19 in your Bibles, you're actually going to see the word, I have chosen him. Why? Because that's the sense of that word know here in that passage. It's the same way that we read in Matthew chapter 7, when, when Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, and he tells us in the last day there are going to be many who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do miracles in your name? And what will Jesus say to them? He will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's not talking about an intellectual cognition, that Jesus wasn't aware of them or, or didn't know that they existed. No, he never knew them intimately, personally. And so when we read here in Romans chapter 8 that, that God foreknew us, as, as John Murray puts it, this, this teaching, what Paul is saying here, is not merely referring to a foresight that recognizes something, but to a foreknowledge that determines something. Paul is saying that God foreknew us in the sense that for God foreloved us. He set his love upon a people beforehand. He knew them from all eternity with affection and delight. Whom God foreknew means whom God chose. And so in this first phrase, Paul is teaching the truth of sovereign election of God's eternal distinguishing love that chose the people for himself based on nothing foreseen in them. If you love God this morning, you love him only because he first loved you. If, if we choose God, it's only because he has first chosen us. If you believe in, in Jesus this morning, it's only because God has first determined to give you faith. We know God only because he first knew us. He first loved us. He is sovereign in salvation. He has chosen a people for himself before times eternal, before the foundation of the world. And he did that apart from anything in us. Now let's just pause here and say, this is a difficult truth, isn't it? It's a difficult truth to understand. It's a difficult truth to receive, to accept, to believe. And, and if this doctrine troubles you, if it confuses you, if you want to reject it and say, I can't believe that, I don't believe that about God, right? then I would encourage you to consider the observation of J.I. Packer in his little book, Evangelism, the Sovereignty of God, that several of the men and I have been reading together this fall. Packer writes, he makes this claim. He says, look, Every Christian right, believes that God is sovereign. And you say, wait a minute, I don't. He says, wait, wait, wait. He says, here's the way I know that this is true. Because first, every Christian thanks God for his or her salvation. And secondly, every Christian prays for God to save those who he knows are not Christians yet. And so Packer is saying, look, you don't thank yourself 
you don't congratulate yourself for your salvation. You, you thank God. You give him the praise, him the credit, him the glory. And you don't pray that God would, would somehow you know, enable people to save themselves. You pray that God would save people. And again, Packer says, therefore, every Christian, whether they're willing to admit it or not, knows deep down in the bottom of their heart that God is sovereign in salvation. Because we know that if salvation were based on our choosing God, then what if I unchose him? If salvation were based on, based on my faith, then what happens when my faith wavers? If salvation is, is based on anything in me, then where is assurance found? Where is confidence found? But thanks be to God, salvation is not based on anything in me or in you. Salvation is based, as Paul says here, on God's prior knowledge of us and love of us. His sovereign election is not based on who we are, but it's in spite of who we are by nature. It's in spite of our sin. He loved me not because I am lovable, but because he loved me. And therefore, assurance is possible Assurance is possible because his purpose does not change. If you love him, if you love him this morning, it is because he has foreknown you. He has foreloved you and his love will never waver. It will never falter. It will never change. God has foreknown you. Well, if, if that's what the first phrase of verse 29 means, then, then what does the second phrase mean? For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Is Paul being redundant here? Is he, is he just sort of repeating himself? Well, no, now in the second phrase, Paul is referring to the destination unto which his elect have been chosen. He is speaking of the goal of his gracious election, his gracious foreknowledge of us. The goal is that he has predestined us, as we saw in Ephesians 1, to be holy and blameless before him. Or as he puts it here, to be conformed to the image of his son. Increasingly more and more in this life, and ultimately, fully and finally, on the day when Jesus returns, on the last day. Think back to Genesis, when Adam fell when he rebelled against God in the garden, the image of God in us was shattered. It was marred. It was broken. But now in Christ Jesus, Paul is saying, that, that image is being renovated and restored. God's plan for his chosen people is that we would look like his son. Ephesians 2 verse 10 puts it beautifully, doesn't it? We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. God is the potter and we are the clay. God is the great woodworker, the woodcarver, and we are the blocks of wood. God is molding us and shaping us and carving us into the image of Jesus. And as we saw last week, he is using our trials, our afflictions, our suffering to accomplish that purpose of conformity to the image of Jesus. It's like perhaps you had, when you were a kid, a rock tumbler, right? 
Did you ever have a rock tumbler and, and you took those old and sort of rough and, and ugly and, 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 you know, just the rocks that weren't very much to look at and you threw them in the rock tumbler, you put in whatever silicon carbonate and whatever, whatever the directions said, right? And, and you turned it on and, and, and after friction and time had done its work, out come these, these beautiful, you know, colorful, smooth and shiny rocks. At least that was what was supposed to happen, Right? I don't think I ever had a rock tumbler that did what it was supposed to do. Maybe you did. But here's the thing. God never fails to make us more and more like Jesus. His work of sanctification, of conforming us to the image of his son, always works the way he intends it to work. God is the one who's begun this good work in us. He's the one who's foreknown us and who has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. And he will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And so Paul can say, we know, we know that our trials will work together for good because God is the one working. God is the one who always finishes what he starts. And God is always successful in fulfilling his purposes. Our final destination is secure by the word, the promise of God, and thus our hearts can rest in confidence and assurance that no matter where you might find yourself today or tomorrow or next week, you will look more and more like Jesus as time goes forward. God's purpose before time guarantees it. And so what is our assurance grounded on? It's grounded on the prior foreknowledge of God, the prior predestination of God. He has foreknown us. He has predestined us to conformity to the image of Jesus. And therefore we are assured, we are confident that that is what will happen. Well, secondly, Paul moves from God's plan before time, his purposes before time, to his execution of that plan in time. His purpose in time. And he here in verse 30 speaks of three actions by which God's eternal counsel and will is brought into reality for those that he has chosen. You see them there in verse 30. He calls them, he justifies them, and he glorifies them. Now notice here that there is an inseparable bond between what God does before time and what he does in time, as well as an inseparable bond between each action to the other. All of those and only those who have been foreknown and predestined are called and justified and glorified. It's not like if you've ever you know, shot off bottle rockets, maybe you've lined up a bunch of them in, in a row and you go and you light each one and, and maybe half of them don't even work, right? They're duds and they don't shoot. That's not the way it is with God, right? He lights the wick of each one that he has chosen and he knows because he has ordained it, that that we will make it all the way to glory. What Paul is setting forth here reminds us of that perfect domino run where, where one domino hits the next, hits the next, hits the next, and it never fails. Each action inexorably, unchangeably, powerfully, unavoidably leads to the next because God ensures that it does. He says that if someone has been foreknown and predestined, then absolutely God will also call them. And if he calls them, then absolutely 
he will also justify them. And if he justifies them, then absolutely he will also glorify them. There is not one sliver or shred of doubt or uncertainty that the next action will happen, Paul is saying. Nothing gets in the way of God's purposes. Recently, uh, Ezra has enjoyed playing with his slinky. He, he, he wanted a slinky, we got him a slinky, and he's enjoyed you know, kind of walking it down the stairs. But if you've ever used a slinky before and tried to get it to go downstairs, right, you know that there is, there is nothing you know, unavoidable about that. Right? You have to have the slinky on the exact right stair, the right spot on the stair. It needs to be the right size. The stair needs to be the right size. You need to push it with the right force so that it can, the force can work with gravity. I mean, if you can get it to go down three stairs, you're doing good, right? But what Paul is talking about here, with this golden chain of salvation, right, it's a slinky that has a 100% chance of making it all the way to the bottom, all the way to the end. It will hit each and every step along the way. If you have been foreknown and predestined, you will be called. You will be justified. You will be glorified. Now, as we look at this order of salvation, we know that, that Paul isn't mentioning every element that we see in all the scriptures. We don't hear about regeneration here or adoption or sanctification, probably because he, he's just mentioned some of these uh, just previously in verses or, or chapters before. But what he does mention brings us from the beginning of the Christian life in our experience, all the way to the end of it, the never-ending end of it. First, God calls us. This is not a reference to the, the general gospel call that goes out when, when the gospel is preached, the gospel invitation. This is a reference to God's effectual call, his effectual summons of his people to Christ. The summons by which he convinces a sinner as our shorter catechism puts it, convinces a sinner of his sin and misery, enlightens your mind the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and renews your will so that you willingly and freely embrace Christ in faith and repentance. This is the call of which Paul speaks here. And when he calls you, he works faith in you. And when you believe in Jesus, you are justified, as we've seen in Romans previously. You are justified, that is, you are declared to be what you are not in yourself, righteous. You are justified. God declares you to be righteous because you are trusting in Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And if God has justified you, then you can have every assurance that he will glorify you. It is so sure and certain that on the last day, those whom God has chosen and called and justified will be glorified. That Look at the way Paul writes it. In the past tense, those whom he justified, he also glorified as if it's already occurred. That's how sure and certain Paul is. One commentator put it like this. Sanctification is glory begun and glory is sanctification consummated. And so because everyone who has been justified, who has been declared righteous, is also being made righteous in Christ, is being conformed to the image of Christ, then glorification is the natural outworking of our justification. It is the natural outworking of God's work in his people. In due time, every believer will be freed from sin, will be freed from sorrow, will have the full redemption for which we groan within, the adoption 
as sons, the the redemption of our body, the resurrection of our body. Paul is telling us here that God has planned the end from the beginning. And therefore, we can rest our souls in full assurance of faith that if God has chosen us, we cannot, we will not lose that salvation but we will persevere in faith. We will persevere in holiness all the way to the end. Again, not because of anything in us, but because God is preserving us all the way to the end. What did we sing this morning? The third verse of A Debtor to Mercy Alone. My name from the palms of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed On his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest, the the down payment, the pledge, the guarantee. As sure as that earnest is given by God to us, we shall endure to the end. And then this last line, so amazing. More happy, but not more secure. The glorified spirits in heaven. Yes, when we are glorified when we die or when Jesus Christ returns, right? We will be more happy then than we are now. The believers who have died in Christ are more happy now than they were here in this life. They're more happy than we are now. But what Augustus Top Lady is saying is that they are not more secure than we are now. We are just as secure as they are, even though they are more happy than we are. And why is that true? Because God's purposes before time will surely be accomplished in time. And therefore we have assurance, assurance that God will finish what he starts. Well, last, I want you to see not only God's purposes before time and his purposes in time, but I want you to see God's purpose for all time and to be assured because of this. The deepest root, the deepest foundation, the firmest foundation that we have for our assurance of faith is what Paul says at the end of verse 29. Yes, God has predestined us for the purpose that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and that will certainly happen. But notice that what he says at the end of verse 29 is that there's an even more fundamental, an even more ultimate purpose that God has in our salvation, in our sanctification, in our conforming to Jesus. And what is that purpose? What is that goal? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What Paul is saying is that God's plan, God's purpose, his goal, his aim for all time, it has always been his purpose. The highest purpose is that he might glorify his son in our conformity to him, so that Jesus might be preeminent and supreme over all things. When Paul says that that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers, he's saying that that God's aim for his son is to be the elder brother, the exalted head over all the siblings of God's family. In the ancient times, in the Bible times, the firstborn was the one who would receive the double portion of the inheritance. He was the one who would be the leader of the family. 
God's purpose for his son is that there would be a family over which his son is head, by whom the son is honored and glorified. When you go to the Gospel of John, this is why you, you see John speaking of election and predestination in the terms of God giving a people to his son as a love gift. Those whom the Father has given to me, Jesus speaks of us believers. And why has he given us to the Son, but that we might worship him and glorify him, that he might be the firstborn exalted over all. And here's the thing. Here's why this is such an assuring truth, because there is no doubt that the Father will glorify his Son. And therefore, there is no doubt that he is going to conform us to the image of his Son, because that will bring Jesus even more glory. And on that last day, when Jesus the firstborn, the elder brother, gathers us all into his presence as his little brothers and his little sisters. We will resemble him in thought, in word, in deed, in every way. We will, as Paul has said in Romans 8, 17, be joint heirs with him, and we will be glorified with him because we have suffered with him. Do you see how assuring this truth is that, that God's purpose for all time is that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren, that he might be exalted, that he might be preeminent over all, God will ensure that that comes to pass. And so this morning, if you struggle with doubt, with a lack of assurance, if, if in the midst of your trials and your, your tribulations, you question whether God has abandoned you, I encourage you, zoom out, right? right zoom out of your life. Zoom out of the little moment in which you find yourself and see your sufferings in light of God's eternal purpose, his eternal purpose for you and for his son. See this wide and broad panorama from beginning to end, from before times eternal until that last day that will never end. When we are glorified with Christ Jesus forevermore, know that that day is coming. It will certainly come. And know that because of God's eternal love for you and for his son, no matter what you are going through right now, if you love God, if you are called according to his purpose, God has a reservation for you in glory. He is keeping that for you and he is keeping you for it. And so brothers and sisters, quiet your restless hearts. Say, be still, my heart. Be still and know that I am God, as we've sung in Psalm 46 this morning. Know that the, the purposes of God before time, in time, and for all time will stand. And therefore, we can stand. Because we know that God holds us. He will never let us go. Nothing can separate us from his love, as Paul will go on to say. No one can snatch us out of his hand. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for these rich promises. Oh, Lord, I pray for those that have walked in this morning struggling to believe your word, struggling with a lack of assurance. Oh, Lord, would you ground their hearts in this truth? Would you plant them in the concrete of Romans 8, 28 to 30? And Lord, we pray for those who've walked in with a, a false assurance of faith. Lord, would you convict them of their sin, of their need for Christ, of their need to look away from self and away from right, their own righteousness. 
and to cling only to Jesus. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us all. Help us all, oh Lord, by your grace to be conformed to the image of your Son, that he might be glorified. We ask all this in his holy name. Amen.